0: Hello, I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm very excited to be recording my podcast, The Literary Life from the Miami Book Fair. This is our 35th anniversary, and we're going to have a very special time together as we'll be talking to some of the most interesting, important, and timely authors writing today. Writers like Tina Brown, Tiare Jones, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and Pete Souza. So join me for this special edition of The Literary Life, recorded at this year's Miami Book Fair. I'm here on The Literary Life with um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, and I couldn't be happier that she's here for the 35th anniversary of the Miami Book Fair because, as I told her a little bit off um, off mic, um, I can honestly say of all the people that have come to the Miami Book Fair, the fondness with which I feel for Doris uh, is unsurpassed. And you've been to at least three book fairs, and I know you were here once or twice with your husband, Richard, whom I miss immeasurably, as I know you do as well. Oh, I'm so
1: glad to be with you, really. It, It feels like I've grown up with my books with you.
0: Yeah, no, it's true, and I feel like I've grown up with you, we've shown some old photographs here. In fact, there's an old photograph of Hunter Thompson.
1: I remember, you remember when we were here, here with him. Oh my God, absolutely. <laughs> that was a
0: wild story. He came, and the last I saw of him, he was like sort of being carried out by two guys in a, in, a, in a car with a convertible. And I thought he was gone. And then I met you the next day. And what did you tell him? He, he ended up where, I think? Well, he ended remember. up in our
1: hotel room. <laughs> right. And I remember he was wearing a shirt that my husband liked. So he took it off his chest and he said, here it is. And then he walked around with no shirt <laughs> on. <laughs>
0: and, and that was that was so many years ago. But it gave me an insight into what journalism was like particularly journalism in the old days in Washington, D.C. Talk a little bit about that, what the closeness that you all had with one Well, another. my
1: husband had been the political editor of the Rolling Stone. Right. So that's how he met Hunter and a whole bunch of wild people. And we were not yet even married at that time. But it was a great period of time. I mean, journalism was becoming more expressive. Obviously, it was going to be the time of Nixon and a lot of turbulence that we're feeling right now, which meant there was a certain camaraderie, I think, among the journalists. And it was a wonderful time to be alive.
0: It really was. And uh, and I remember Richard came because he had written, he was he had also written a play I believe at he, that time. He had written a play well. about
1: Galileo and Pope in the Eighth, which ended up being put on in England and then in Boston. But there was a book called Remembering America, which was about his experiences working with Kennedy and Johnson, and he was with Bobby Kennedy when he died. So it was that optimistic early part of the '60s where public lives were being expressed in private lives, and people felt they could change the world. And and obviously the war changed a lot of that. But it was a great. Opportunity optimistic moment.
0: It really was. And contrast that with where we are now.
1: I know. No, I mean, I guess the one thing that history can give us reassurance of is that these people that I've written about, Lincoln and the two Roosevelt's and LBJ, they lived through times that were more turbulent than ours. Obviously, if you're in the middle of the Civil War and 600,000 people are going to die, Lincoln said if he'd ever imagined the kind of anxiety he would feel when he got into office, he couldn't have thought he could have lived through it. You know, or you're a young person at the beginning of the Great Depression and you can't get any money out of the bank and there's no jobs to be held, or the World War II and you're not sure how it's gonna end. So just remembering that. But I think the the thing was we had leaders at the right time in the right place. And the citizens were active. I mean, Lincoln was called the liberator. He said, don't call me that. It was the anti-slavery movement that did it all. And then obviously the progressive movement precedes the two Roosevelt's, the people in the cities and towns and states that are setting up settlement houses and the social gospel. And the civil rights movement precedes LBJ. So it's a a wake up call for us that it's time for citizens really to just take responsibility for the situation we're in right now and be active. And the midterm election showed more lines People ever before, young people voting. It was encouraging. Absolutely, it's very
0: very true. And I I think what you what. The historic perspective that you give to this is so important and it's so hopeful. Because certainly even in my own life, I remember the Vietnam War, I remember the turbulence that surrounded that. I remember the division that was you know the hard hats versus the kids, the 67 conventions. We had a very, very turbulent period. Uh, I think the thing that's so frustrating about this is that it's kind of manufactured. It's that we, 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 we voted in somebody whose whole being is turbulence. His whole reason for existing is turbulence.
1: I mean, there was obviously polarization before he got there. Um, but what you hope is when you get a president, they try to heal those divisions. I mean, the divisions were there not only between the party, but people in the rural areas versus the cities, people in certain parts of the country. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt warned that democracy would fail if people in different regions and religions and races began to think of each other as the the other. So we already had that problem, but it's been escalated thousands of times more. And you would hope the leadership would go in the opposite direction.
0: Most definitely. It's as if he's picking at a scab that that we've been healing from, and and now it's opened up these wounds. And what's particularly poignant is in relief or in contrast to where we just came from with Obama. I mean, it's where we thought we were closing that gap. Oh, I think
1: all of us remember that night at Grand Park. There was an probably unrealistic perception that... Everything was going to be great now. You know, the first black American was president. Right. And underneath, there was still a lot of feelings. And again, they've come out on the surface more than they were before.
0: Yeah, very it just
1: much so. I mean, the, the thing that's so hard is just when I think about what the leadership traits are that my guys, as I like to call these four guys, <laughs> had. I mean, just all you have to do is name them. Humility, the ability to acknowledge errors, empathy to understand other people's points of view, resilience. Um, the ability to control your emotions and your unproductive feelings and can be able to communicate in a way that heals things rather than escalates them. And, and we're looking for that leadership. That leadership is so in need for the country today.
0: We are, but we also look for those people who have that perspective like you, and we can't thank you enough for having that and for bringing that to the public discourse. And as I was telling you that, you know, we don't see each other that regularly, but I see you so regularly. And uh, whenever your voice is 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 on, whether it's television or radio, uh, all of a sudden my heart rate goes down and my blood pressure tends to go down. And I'm begin to think, okay, we'll be all right.
1: Yeah. And it's not simply that I have an optimistic temperament, but I probably do. But it's more than that. I think that's what you really can know from history. I mean, Lincoln said that still nobody would ever rather be in any other country than ours. And we have to remember that. And he was worried at a time when he was in his 20s about the way there was such anxiety in the country with the anti-slavery editors being killed and the lynchings in the South. He gave this famous speech when he was 29, in which he said he worried that in such a time, there might arise amongst us, somebody like a Napoleon or a Julius Caesar, because that's when the urge for authoritarianism comes. And he said the answer to it is we just have to remember the ideals of the revolution. He said he was worried that the revolution was fading in people's minds. So he said everybody should be reading to their children the ideals of America and the history of the country, and that that would be the the sort of the rock on which things would be all right. And I still do believe that, as long as we keep remembering where we've come from and knowing that we got through these times before because the leader came along, but more importantly the citizens got that leader. I mean, that's the important thing. It's up to us right now. The Leadership is a collective mirror of us.
0: Beautifully said. And I agree with you completely. And we did come out and vote. The thing that was so dispiriting to me is I felt like we were sort of stuck in the water in a sense. We were rudderless, not rudderless so much as without an engine. When you had the House and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the presidency and nobody was speaking out, against it, and there were no checks and balances at that point. Can you remember another time when there weren't those kinds of checks and balances? No, but
1: you know, in a a sense, the ultimate check and balance is none of those institutions, it's the people. And the people spoke this time. I mean, the fact that young people voted in record numbers, the fact that more women are running for office. What I've been worried about in these last years is that public office seemed not as fulfilling as it might have seemed in the earlier decades. You spend so much time raising money. You're in your own little silo in Washington, there's nothing getting done that you can be proud of to tell your children and yet all these people who never had run for office before wanted to run this time and the numbers of women who are now in training for I mean they have Emily's List there's Emerge America they're training women to want to be in politics and they're now entering library commissionerships city councils I think the answer to where we're going to go may not come right away from Washington but it'll come from cities and states that's always where the energy is and there's a lot happening in the cities and states right now there's enforced states there are ballots that passed for nonpartisan congressional districts being drawn right. there's constitutional amendment in some states to overturn citizens united My own favorite thing would be some national service program for kids when they come out of high school, for the city kids to go to the country and the country kids Uh to go to the city, and they learn about each other's lives. But more importantly, they serve the country so you have a common mission. I think one of the reasons we had bipartisanship in the 60s and 70s and 50s even, a lot of those congressmen and senators had been um, veterans of World War II or the Korean War, so they knew what it was like to work for a common purpose. And there's more veterans joining the Congress right now. So all of these are hopeful signs, and we, we have no choice but to be hopeful. We have to believe it can change.
0: Yeah, I, I feel better already. Oh, Bruce. right. <laughs> um, From an old
1: person, yeah. I can tell you these well, things.
0: Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, your story is well known, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about, I know that you were um, you were a professor at Harvard when you got the call and uh, you ended up working for LBJ. For LBJ. <laughs> yeah, and it was a strange a experience. I
1: mean, I was 24 years old, was selected as a White House fellow, a prop- fabulous program. Colin Powell was a White House fellow. Wesley Clark, it still exists today. And we had a big dance at the White House. He did dance with me, but there are only three women out of the 16 fellows. <laughs> so it wasn't that weird. <laughs> but he said he wanted me to be working directly for him in the White House. But it was not to be that simple, for in the months leading up to my selection, like many young people, I was active in the anti-Vietnam War right. movement. And a friend of mine and I had written an article, which we sent to the New Republic against LBJ. We heard nothing. And then two days or so after the dance, it appears in the New <laughs> Republic with the title <laughs> yeah. How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. <laughs> so I was certain he would kick me out of the program. But instead, surprising, he said, oh, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. So it was an incredible experience to work with him the last year in the White House, and then a him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs. And he was so sad those last years, knowing that the war in Vietnam had cut his domestic legacy in two. But So he talked to me in ways he never would have had I known him at the height of his power. And now, 50 years later, when you think of his legacy, you know, voting rights and civil rights and fair housing, Medicare, Medicaid, aid to education, PBS, NPR, Head Start, immigration reform, any one of those things would be a signature law. So I'm happy to, to know that historians are beginning to recognize that, and it will go side by side with Vietnam.
0: You know, it's interesting, we had Pete Souza here. Oh yes, just Obama's guest. the other, yes, the other day, and he was talking about how LBJ's photographer, um, i yeah, his name. Yeah, yeah Yoki. Yoki. and <laughs> he was really the first White House photographer to have the kind of intimacy that then happened afterwards. As oh,
1: well. I didn't realize that, yeah. but I remember he was everywhere, so he, that makes complete he sense. He looks at
0: him as sort of like the oh, heroic, that's
1: interesting to know, heroic, yeah.
0: Um, uh, White House, um, but you were probably the White House fellow that had the most intimate relationship with the president as and well. And again, it
1: was just chance. You know, it was a timing. If I had worked for him two years earlier, it would have been more exciting in some ways because you'd been there when all that domestic legislation was going through. But then he wouldn't have had time to talk right. to a young girl. Exactly. And then because he was on his ranch and lonely in a lot of ways, he did open up to me, telling me the best stories. So it really made me empathize with all the leaders I studied after that. Instead of judging them from the outside in, I tried to just understand them. And obviously you'd be disappointed with some of the things they did, but each one of these four guys, um, certainly the two Roosevelt's and Lincoln, I loved living with them every moment of my uh, life.
0: That's what often when you talk to a biographer, they say, I have to enjoy living with a person that I'm going to be writing about for six seven eight years Oh, there's no
1: way i could write about a mussolini or a hitler or stalin <laughs> exactly. i give my fellow historians such credit <laughs> to do that. so but i want to wake up with them you know right. my only fear always is that is in the afterlife there'll be a panel of all the presidents that i've ever studied and everyone will tell me everything i got wrong about them and the first person <laughs> to scream out of course will be lyndon johnson how come those damn books on the roosevelts was twice as long as the book you wrote about me
0: <laughs> that's great we'll be right back with doris kearns goodwin you're listening to the literary life We're back with Doris Kearns Goodwin on the literary life at the 35th anniversary of the Miami Book Fair. Doris, it's uh, it's been like a blink to be honest. Um, I can I remember you so vividly, all of the talks that you've given here, and now you're here talking about your leadership the leadership in turbulent times. Talk about the genesis of this. Did you start it before Trump? Or did I did. <laughs> it, I imagine you did. So talk a little bit about it.
1: I mean, I think even before Trump, I was thinking that there was a problem with the leadership in terms of the lack of bipartisanship in Congress and on some of the state levels. But even more important than that, once I finished Teddy and Taft, this question was, do I find a new guy that's going to take me 10 years? And each time I left one of these guys behind, I would feel like I was leaving my old boyfriend behind. <laughs> so I decided, what if? I just keep them together and instead look at them through the lens of leadership. When I was in grad school, we used to stay up at night asking big leadership questions. Where does ambition come from? Does the man make the times or does the times make the man? You know, there's a sense of, is it inborn or is it developed? So I decided if I just looked at them and I start when they're young, partly because I was in a college audience and a student raised his hand, I was talking about the Roosevelt's and he said, how can I ever become one of them? They're on Mount Rushmore, they're too remote. So I figured if I started when my four guys were running the first time, they're going to struggle. They're going to face failure. They're going to disappoint themselves. They're going to be arrogant. And so an aspiring person could say, well, maybe I can follow this path to leadership upward.
0: Yeah, no. And and it's resonated with readers I know in our bookshop, it's been a daily seller. It's a bestseller. It's a bestseller in the indie bookshops as well. And it's at number four on the bestseller list. So it's obviously resonated with people all across this country. And what's, what's interesting as well is that you've, you've got lessons in here that people in other walks of life can also take. It's not just a political book. Per yeah, se. I mean,
1: leadership is about human nature. It's how you create a team. And do you have the sensitivity to the emotional people in that team? Can you draw them together for a common purpose? So, it's just as relevant for business or for university leadership that, as it is for political leadership. And interestingly, each one of my four guys went through a really tough time. They went through what we'd call a trial of fire. And they came through wiser with more perspective at the other end. And I think that's something that all of us in life go through. And you know that if you can understand loss and then come through, and they had real losses. I mean, Lincoln had a near suicidal depression and Teddy Roosevelt lost his wife and his mother on the same day. In in the same house. And of course, FDR had his polio. But through those experiences, they dug deep within them and somehow became something different on the other end. So that's the second part of the book. The first part is when they're young leaders. And then once they get into the presidency, I just decided to take their pivotal moments. So the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, for Lincoln, and the, this big, big coal strike for Teddy, and the 100 days for FDR. I hadn't even studied the 100 days before because my last book on the Roosevelt's was the war. So it was really fun to look at his Domestic leadership, and then civil rights, of course, for Johnson.
0: And a lot of the early reversals they had. made them more empathetic, as we talked about. Exactly right. I mean, I
1: think empathy is probably the most important quality for a leader, which means to be able to understand what other people are feeling. And Teddy developed it when he was a state legislator. He said when he first went into office, he wasn't going to change people's lives. He just thought it would be adventure to be in politics. But then he saw people living in tenements. He saw child labor. And he began to think, well, maybe I can make their lives better. And I think for FDR as well, he became much more warm-hearted after the polio. You know, identifying with other people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. So those experiences really matter.
0: Without putting you on the spot, do do you have, is there someone out there now in our political world that maybe young, maybe just starting that you see has that spark of leadership that might bring us into the future? I'm, I'm
1: sure there is, you know, and I think probably it's somebody at a local level that people know. I mean, even when Lincoln was young before he wins, um, the presidency way before, people knew they were in the presence of somebody who was special. His kindness, his sensitivity, his desire to learn, the way he treated other people. And incredibly, it's a midterm election in 1858 where he loses a Senate right. race right. and then becomes the president. So those who look to Texas and to O'Rourke's and, and campaign, and tobacco, there's yeah. there's a certain kind of... There's something... I, I haven't met him. There was something about the way he ran the campaign, generating that enthusiasm, going to every single county. Uh, and not he,
0: having any pollsters. Right. Right.
1: and raising the money the way he did. So right. maybe there's a mayor somewhere, maybe there's him himself, right. or maybe there's a woman somewhere that we, we didn't know Obama before Obama became Obama. That's <laughs> so true.
0: It's amazing when you look at the photograph that was taken of the freshman, the freshman yeah, uh, Congress I know. people and, and how it really looked like America more than right. any time that I ever remember.
1: And that's, that's very important. I mean, that we have a diverse society, and we've got to honor that and look to the future you know, instead of looking to the past and wanting to undo the immigrants I mean, that's our strength to be a nation of other nations. And to have that recorded in the Congress, finally, in a greater degree, still not enough, but much more than it has been in the past.
0: Doris, you know, the, the other just, we'll, we'll end on a, on a note that I can thank you so much for lowering my blood pressure even just right now. <laughs> but let's also talk about another passion of yours, which is baseball. A little bit. And you came one year for waiting for next year. Right, exactly. So, so. where do you stand with baseball now? Well, What's what was
1: so interesting about this World Series was that I originally was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. I know. And then have last for the last 35, 40 years been a Red Sox fan because the Dodgers abandoned us and went to Los <laughs> Angeles. So, people said, Who are you going to be for in this World Series? Well, my first love may have been the Brooklyn Dodgers, but my lifelong love yes, was the, the Red, Red Sox. Sox. I still haven't gotten around the notion that we've now won four World Series <laughs> I don't in this century. <laughs>
0: it's kind of amazing. It, it, I mean isn't I it? feel
1: like almost a miniature Yankee fan now <laughs> and but it never never doesn't feel great although nothing will ever match what it was like to win the first time. We'd been waiting so long, and every year we would lose. Every year, somehow, some old guy stood up once. I remember after we lost to the Yankees in the playoffs, he said, year after year after year, and everybody just laughed in that common misery. So I think baseball still has a special uniqueness to be passed down from a parent to a kid, to be part of a community feeling. And because it's a slow-moving game, you can talk in the middle of it. And there's 162 games, so it's 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 the summer. It's the summer and the fall if you're lucky.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And also talk a little bit about another thing that has uh, taken hold with your books. It started with Team of Rivals when Spielberg did the Lincoln uh, film. How, 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 what's your relationship to film now?
1: Well, yeah. I think that's what I'm going to spend some time doing before I find the next guy because there's a possibility that Ida Tarbell, one of the characters a muckraking journalist in Bully Pulpit, there's a oh. movie being made about her oh, and beautiful. there's a chance that maybe there'll be a miniseries about Franklin and Eleanor and I may be working on a documentary on old George Washington. So just, it was so much fun making the movie with Steven Spielberg and getting to know the great Daniel Day-Lewis, that I'd I'd love for at least a period of time to be doing that. The the first thing I have to do though, my husband who died this last spring, as we were talking about, was working on a book about his love affair with America, really, the ideals of America, because his whole life was mostly in public service, and he almost finished. So I'll finish that first, and then get involved with films, and then maybe find some new woman to write about.
0: (laughs) Well, Doris, it's a thrill to have you here. It's a thrill to just see you. And I can't wait to hear you in about 15 minutes when you go on. (laughs) Thank you so so much. I'm so
1: glad to be with you. Really, it is a marker on on my writing life, no question. (laughs)
0: Thanks. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Literary Life, and uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.